Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dominic Packer. I'm the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Arts and Sciences here at Lehigh. And I welcome you for what promises to be a really exciting and thought-provoking evening. I'm thrilled to see you all here, almost packed house, and for, grateful for the opportunity to spend an evening with you. I'd like to start by thanking Jeffrey Kenner, who makes these events possible, as well as, and in a moment I'll, I'll talk a bit more about her, our esteemed guest for this evening, Judy Woodruff. Unfortunately, unfortunately Jeff Kenner could not be with us tonight, but I'd like to take a brief moment to tell you a little bit about how important these Kenner lectures on cultural understanding are for Lehigh. The 2019 lecture, what we're doing tonight, marks the 22nd year since Jeff endowed this lecture fund, and it's become the premier lecture in the College of Arts and Sciences and the university community. Every year, this lecture features world-class leaders interacting with Lehigh students, faculty, and capacity audiences. Mr. Kenner graduated from Lehigh in 1965 as an industrial engineering major. He earned a second degree the next year in business and then began a long and successful career. In 1986, he formed his own firm, Kenner and Company Incorporated, which specializes in leveraged buyouts and recapitalization of closely held companies. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> Jeff's support of Lehigh has nevertheless been unwavering. Here are just a few things. He served on the Board of Trustees from 1995 to 2002. He's committed a great deal to scholarship support of undergraduates. He's provided funding for a variety of spaces around campus. His name currently is affiliated with the renovated Great Room in Lamberton Hall. He's provided critical seed funding for the Integrated Business and Engineering Undergraduate Program and been a longtime member of Lehigh's Asa Packer Tower and Leadership Plaza Societies. The Kenner Lecture brings to our campus speakers who help us to confront our preconceptions and challenge us to see things from new perspectives. Past speakers have included Nobel Prize winners, political leaders, and prominent members of the media. And tonight, we are absolutely thrilled to welcome Judy Woodruff as our speaker for 2019. An eminent broadcast journalist, Ms. Woodruff is the anchor and managing editor of the PBS NewsHour. She has covered politics and other news for more than three decades at CNN, NBC, and PBS. Her career has been path-breaking in all sorts of ways, and as but one example, when she and the late Gwen Ifill were announced as co-anchors of the PBS NewsHour in 2013, it marked the first time in history that an American network broadcast was co-anchored by two women. When I learned at about 3 p.m. this afternoon that I was going to be introducing Judy, I pulled up her Twitter feed, hoping to spice these remarks up a little bit. Um, unfortunately for my, my remarks, remarks, they were perfectly on point, nothing scandalous or salacious. But one of her recent tweets did catch my eye. And it began, a lot of news today. And I thought, yeah, that just about sums it up. <laughs> Every day these days, it seems like there's a lot of news today, right? We used to have things called slow news days. And I don't really remember what those were like, but it must have been great. <laughs> Judy Woodruff served as the White House correspondent for NBC News from 1977 to 1982. She then became the chief Washington correspondent for the McNeil Lehrer News Hour at PBS from 1983 to 1993. During this time, she also anchored PBS's award-winning weekly documentary series, Frontline, with Judy Woodruff. And then from 1993 to 2005, she served as the anchor and senior correspondent at CNN, where her duties included anchoring the, weekly, the weekday program Inside Politics. And in 2006, she returned to PBS, where, as said, she is currently anchor and managing editor of the PBS News Hour. 
Ms. Woodruff has been a visiting professor at Duke University's Institute of Public Policy, served as a visiting fellow at Harvard. She's a founding co-chair of the International Women's Media Foundation, an organization dedicated to promoting and encouraging women in communication industries worldwide. The Kenner Lecture on Cultural Understanding is fundamental to the, co- the culture of the College of Arts and Sciences and to Lehigh University. These lectures educate and enlighten us. They challenge and they provoke us. And they cause us to ask new questions. And every once in a while, they might cause us to chart a new course in the world. And particularly now, when every day there's a lot of news today, and when the credibility of the media is increasingly under threat, when fake news proliferates, and as social media platforms fundamentally change the business model for journalism, who better to speak with us tonight than the journalist, broadcaster, and consummate professional, Judy Woodruff. And one final note for the evening. At the conclusion of her lecture, there'll be a question-answer session uh, with microphones, and we strongly encourage the audience to pose thoughtful questions. I will just say, if you find that you have more of a comment than a question, I would ask that you either find the question lurking within the comment or maybe secede the microphone to somebody else. But other than that, I wish you a very enjoyable evening. And my friends, again, please welcome, and I give you Judy Woodruff. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Dean Packer. You filled in admirably at the last minute. We appreciate that. Did you hear that music? That's familiar. Um, I am delighted to be here. As you know, as you just heard, not much going on in the news these days, so it was easy to get away. Um, I am truly honored, though, to be here in this beautiful Lehigh Valley, what a gem of a part of the country this is. You, you have a secret here. You need to get the word out. Uh, so more people move. <laughs> no, it is truly a, a, a beautiful part of this country, and you are so blessed uh, to, to live and to be, to study here, to work here, to live here. Um, and I am incredibly honored to have been asked to deliver this year's Kenner Lecture Um, I did read a little about Jeff Kenner. You just heard about him. Uh, I know he's a Lehigh graduate. I know he's uh, actually a double graduate. He got both an engineering and a business degree. He's been immensely supportive of the school. Um, He... uh, Uh, And then to read about the people who have given this lecture over the years, uh, from Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State, the former President of Ireland, uh, Mary Robinson, uh, former Senator Bill Bradley, I'm doubly honored uh, to be here with you. And I just have to say another word about this remarkable school. Lehigh has such a distinguished history, uh, as I've learned, as I've been preparing for tonight and reading about uh, this place. It, it, as you know, grew out of that, that tumultuous time after the Civil War when, as your own website notes, the United States was both rebuilding from the terrible and costly conflict of North versus South, but also flexing its mu- muscles as a new economic power. It was the owner of the Lehigh Valley Railroad, an essential link as iron and coal were increasingly being used in industry, had to be transported long distances, who stepped up. Your founder, Asa Packer, had a vision. 
He made an enormously generous gift to create a new university, as he put it, to serve the intellectual and moral improvement of the young men of the Lehigh Valley. We're going to forgive him for that because a a lot of amazing women have walked through these doors uh, over the years. But also over the years, this school has grown to be one of the most respected institutions in this country of higher learning, renowned for its research, for its high academic standards. And as my husband pointed out when I was talking to him this past weekend about visiting Lehigh, he said, you know, they have a 96% retention rate. Students who come here stay here. They like it, they learn, and they are committed to this place. What higher recommendation could there be? So congratulations to this amazing school for what you are doing to prepare the next generation of American leaders. Let's give Lehigh a hand. It is a treat to be with you, and I can say that having spent the day, part of the afternoon, with Lehigh students uh, in the School of Arts and Sciences, I can testify that's absolutely true. They grilled me with tougher questions than President Trump gets at his news conferences. (laughs) True. Um, I want to talk this evening um, about the current political divide and explore with you how it got this way and ask whether it should continue as it is. When I started out as a political reporter in the early 1970s, the country was fresh on the heels of the civil rights movement. Federal legislation had been passed in 1964 to end segregation in public places and to ban employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. A year later, in 1965, the Voting Rights Act passed and aimed to overcome legal barriers at the state and local level that prevented African Americans from exercising their right to vote. Martin Luther King had been assassinated three years later in 1968, the year I graduated from college, for his peaceful but revolutionary resistance, as had Robert F. Kennedy, the brother of the president, who had himself been assassinated in 1963. It was a traumatic time for all of us living at that time, for anyone growing up in America. As we think back on it, it's hard to imagine what we went through during that period of the 1960s. But all this combined with the war in Vietnam, which the U.S., of course, did not win, but which cost over 50,000 American lives, left this country feeling divided and in many ways unsure of itself. From President Lyndon Johnson, who oversaw passage of these huge pieces of civil rights legislation that changed lives, as well as Medicare, to Richard Nixon, who for all of his problems with Watergate, opened the door to environmental protection and more equal treatment of women through the Equal Employment Opportunity Act. It was a time of enormous churn and change in this country, the 1970s. Women and people of color were finally being given something closer to equality, although, of course, it would take many years. It is still taking years for real and complete progress to be made. But today, the struggle, and today, the struggle continues. The Nixon presidency ended in disgrace, 
as we know. It would fall to Gerald Ford and then Jimmy Carter, the first president I covered, to realize more of the dreams of unity and to discover new fault lines among the American people with, for example, immigrants coming in from Vietnam and from Cuba, the Mariel Boatlift of 1980. The percentage of the population that is immigrant rose from a low of about 5% in 1970 to almost 15% today. That has created strains in this country that have grown pronounced even with this bustling, booming economy that is producing jobs for so many, so many able-bodied Americans. I'm condensing all this into a few sentences to make the point that the United States has and had endured terrible divisions, certainly during the Vietnam War, certainly during the Civil Rights Movement, even during the Women's Movement, but would enjoy a period, we would go on to enjoy a period of relative calm and comparative equality as we began a period of economic growth under President Reagan and presidents to follow him, even more so under President Bill Clinton's time in the White House, the roaring 1990s, some people refer to it as. That along, we saw that period came the fall of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, all that seemed to give us strength as a country and to give us some sense of achievement after uh, the lingering effects of the war in Vietnam. But, but, rising inequality as we entered this new millennium along economic lines, along gender lines, along racial lines, divided the country anew and has left us, many of us, with grievances that are taking a very long time for us to work through. People often ask me if I have ever seen anything like what we are witnessing in Washington right now. And I do think back to that period in the 1960s when I was a young woman, I was finishing high school and then college, and I think about the 70s. But my answer is no. I've never seen anything like what we are living through today. Yes, I've covered serious political disagreements between Republicans and Democrats. Jimmy Carter, who had, had uh, shellacked Gerald Ford just four years earlier, was devastated when he lost to Ronald Reagan. George H.W. Bush, President Bush 41, and his supporters were equally devastated to lose to Bill Clinton, whom many of them considered unworthy, governor of a small state of Arkansas. What is he doing coming in and taking over the White House from President Bush? As devastated as Al Gore was to George W. Bush in 2000 because of that act of the United States Supreme Court after the, the hanging chads in the state of Florida, uh, we remember what happened and so on. Barack Obama was seen as an illegitimate president by some on the right when he was elected. Most vividly, as we look on it back on it now by President Trump, who heavily promoted the birther movement calling into question whether President Obama was born in the United States and should have even been allowed to take office. So yes, we have seen division in this country. We have seen our political parties fight tooth and nail to win elections. But when the vote counting was over, when the anger calmed, they honored the results. 
After his loss, Jimmy Carter and his wife, Rosalind, went on to create the Carter Center in Atlanta, dedicated to peaceful conflict resolution and aiding some of the poorest nations on the planet. Since it was founded, it has helped to improve life for people in more than 80 countries by resolving conflicts, by advancing democracy and human rights, preventing disease, and improving mental health care, a passion of Rosalind Carter. Al Gore gave a magnanimous concession speech shortly after the Supreme Court ruled against him in 2000. He stood before a bank of cameras and he said, almost a century and a half ago, Senator Stephen Douglas told Abraham Lincoln, who had just defeated him for the presidency, partisan feeling must yield to patriotism. I'm with you, Mr. President, and God bless you. And Al Gore continued, well, in that same spirit, I say to President-elect Bush that what remains of partisan rancor must now be put aside, and may God bless his stewardship of this country. He went on, while we yet hold and do not yield our opposing beliefs, there is a higher duty than the one we owe to our political party. This is America, and we put country before party. We will stand together behind our new president. John McCain said this about Barack Obama on the night he conceded in November 2008, and I'm quoting, in a contest as long and difficult as this campaign has been, his success alone commands my respect for his ability and his perseverance, but that he managed to do so by inspiring the hopes of so many millions of Americans who had once wrongly believed that they had little at stake or little influence in the election of of an American president is something I deeply admire and commend him for achieving. That was John McCain. Like most or perhaps all of you, I hope that these sentiments are ones that will prevail when our next election takes place, no matter which side wins. But I worry because I have never seen the level of division that we see today, not just among our elected leaders, but among the American people. The language people use to disagree, not just calling those in the other party the adversary, but instead they're calling them the enemy, and too often unpatriotic or un-American. For example, when President Trump criticizes those who disagree with him, he at times questions their loyalty to the United States whether on questions of immigration and the border or foreign policy, on social issues like abortion. He has accused those who favor abortion rights, as he said in this year's State of the Union address, of being guilty of executing babies. He's accused undocumented immigrants to the U.S. from Mexico and Central America of being made up mostly of gang members, rapists, and murderers. And with his travel bans, He has tried to sharply limit the number of immigrants from Muslim countries. He has said the migrant surge from the Middle East is like a Trojan horse. And at one point he added, you look at the migration, it's strong young men. We cannot take a chance that the people coming over here are not going to be ISIS-affiliated. But with the increasing number of anti-Semitic incidents we've seen in this country, like the shooting at the Pittsburgh synagogue a few months ago, anti-Muslim incidents that we 
excuse me, that we've seen around this country and then exacerbated by last week's mass shooting in New Zealand at two mosques, there is a clear sense, because we live in a global community, we are all now connected by social media, by the internet, in ways that we have never been connected before. Today, there's a clear sense that some of the most vitriolic and most hateful language is grounded in religious or ethnic differences. Religious or ethnic differences. Just two weeks ago, a freshman Democratic member of Congress drew criticism after she spoke of her fellow members who support policies that favor Israel as having divided loyalties, having allegiance to a foreign country. The criticism rained down on her. The Democratic Party leadership faced pressure to censure her. They negotiated a resolution that was originally aimed just at her for being anti-Semitic, but they ultimately uh, worded it in a way that would condemn all forms of hate speech. As if that weren't painful enough, the Washington Post has a story this morning describing a meeting of Democratic members in recent days, members of Congress, in which an effort to better understand each other, this was just a couple of weeks ago, broke up in anger and tears after a Jewish congressman asked that freshman Democrat Ilhan Omar apologize and that the group public, publicly affirm Israel's right to exist and to protect itself. The article described how another Muslim member of Congress in the meeting, Rashida Tlaib, started to cry as she remembered her grandmother suffering in the West Bank uh, at the time of Israeli control. Imagine these conversations that are taking place right now among our elected members of Congress and the Senate. I share these story, this story because I think it illustrates how some of our political leaders are trying to work through the raw differences in our points of view in an effort to bring their party together, even all of us together, but finding it is not easy to do. This group met in private, behind the scenes, as congressional leaders were trying to figure out how to address that resolution, the pressure to condemn Representative Omar for her comments. But even before all this broke out in the open, we in the news media have been regularly reporting on and weighing the political divide that has the country in the palm and the grip of its hand over immigration, over the border wall, over health care, over government spending, whether a large increase in defense spending is warranted, and so on and so on for our spending priorities, whether the Environmental Protection Agency budget should be slashed by one-third, and so on and so on. Very tough and difficult questions that get to the center of some of the divisions that we're talking about right now. And this doesn't take into consideration the fight over the Russia probe, the Robert Mueller investigation that wise observers are saying should be wrapping up soon. New bits and pieces emerge from time to time, but his work, I have to say, has been remarkably leak-free. Some of us in the media contribute to this divide that I'm talking to you about by taking sides ourselves. It's well known that the president refers to, and this is at a time when the president refers to most or almost all of us as 
uh, creating fake news and being the enemy of the American people. I want to stand here and tell you I am not an enemy of the American people. And I don't produce fake news. Yes, I make mistakes. I'm human. My colleagues make mistakes. We're human. But we don't traffic in false information. That's not what we do. That's not what journalists do. It's, it's, it, has, it, it's, it violates our very sense of, of commitment to journalism, to, re, to reporting the news, to even think about that. But that is the climate that we are now living in, and more, as more and more Americans are hearing this charge that is directed at the press and believing it, and calling us and then suspecting us of being, uh, uh, you know, having an agenda and of wanting to, to uh, uh, take over the government and turn it in another direction. Um, having said all that, I think it is a terrible mistake for reporters, for journalists to engage in some kind of contest with the president. We only serve our readers and our viewers when we report the news straight when we focus on what matters in people's lives and not when we get into some sort of name-calling contest with the President of the United States. I tell my colleagues at the News Hour every morning we need to keep our heads down, do our work as thoroughly and as carefully as we can all day long until we put our head on the pillow at night. That is the way we fulfill our mission. That is the way we fulfill our mission, and not by getting into uh, some sort of contest with um, the president or any other political leader who, uh, who labels us in ways that are not accurate. But having said that, a lot of airspace and a lot of print pages are being taken up with advocating right now for one political side or another, and vilifying, by the way, the other side. And with growing power that we see every day of the Internet, of social media, citizens can, can, and they are, joining in the debate. They can email. They can post on Facebook. They can go to YouTube. They can tweet, whatever their favorite platform is. And these comments can be uplifting. They can be informative. They can be educational. But they can also be threatening and worse and everything and anything in between. With this wonderful, wonderful democratizing technology has come along with the good, the fact that more people can participate, more people can weigh in, more people can say what they think. And I welcome that, and my colleagues welcome that. But along with it has come the dark side. Facebook and YouTube, their tech staff worked feverish, feverishly last Friday in the hours after the terrible New Zealand shooting, the massacre at those two mosques, to take down live video that that man had posted. Uh, he knew exactly how to post it from the camera that was going live and the, the, the cap he was wearing. Um, but they had to work for hours and hours and days to pull down the, what is it, one and a half million videos that people were attempting to recreate, to send, to share, to look at, and so on. Um, unthinkable. Uh, but this is what we deal with now. And I interviewed uh, just uh, yesterday a woman who 
who reports on the social media industry who said if the, some, a similar massacre were to take place a week from now, a few weeks from now, she believes the, the social media companies would, would be no better equipped to, uh, to deal with this kind of, with these images that are out there. So it's, on the one hand, it's uplifting, and on the other hand, it can be a monster uh, in our midst. The larger question, though, raised by all of this is what level of difference and disagreement can we live with as a society? If we have come to view those who disagree with us uh, on questions whether it's the role of government, how active should government be in our lives, immigration or education or health care, you name it, race, religion, if, if we have come to view people who disagree with us on these issues as, as our, not just people we disagree with, but our enemy, and not just as, as someone who happens to have a different view, but as someone who's not loyal, not a loyal American, how do we process that? What are we left with? Is that really what, where we want to be? Can we continue to ratchet up and, or stand by as others ratchet up the hateful language, follow the lead of political leaders who thrive on conflict, or do we look for ways to bridge some of these divides? We have no illusion, I have no illusion, I know you don't, that we're going to come up with some sort of kumbaya moment uh, where we're all holding hands and everything's, we're all going to live happily ever after. And besides, this is a country that was built on vigorous debate. It was built on fierce disagreements about how to go forward, what kind of government to create, how much power to give to the states, how much power to give to the federal government, to, um, uh, to give to, to the center of this government. That, that has made us strong, and it has made us even stronger over time because we can have these vigorous debates. We can and we do speak out about our differences in public. We are not intimidated or fearful that we're going to be thrown in jail or worse if we criticize the president or another political leader because we have a particular view. That's the freedom. That's the democratic system that we cherish, that our founding fathers created. But is there a way to preserve open debate without damaging relationships. More and more Americans are avoiding that question, I believe, by moving, well, not just I believe, I see, you see it in the statistics, people are moving to parts of the country to live near other people who agree with them politically. Uh, the, the demographers are, are seeing this. People, rather than confronting people who feel differently than they do, who see differently, have different political uh, ideas, uh, in many cases, not in every one, but in many cases they're moving to places where they feel more at home in, in their views. But I hope that that is not the future of this country. I hope that, that more of us, that most of us, will look for ways to look each other in the eye and to listen, to listen to each other and learn from each other and not give up Having a, uh, on having a diverse society where we have disagreements and we have vigorous debate about whether it's the most divisive subject, in the, if it's abortion, if it's immigration, if it's race, whatever it is, our religion, that we're able to have these conversations, but that we're strengthened by it rather than 
running away from it. Through forums, frankly, like this one, uh, through and many others that you have in the, in the Lehigh Valley area, many of them sponsored at the university, through community activities that are geared toward hearing each other out, hear, learning why other people feel the way they do and think the way they do. Um, we, we may not have leaders in our very near future who will lead us out of this period of difference and division. So in, I think in many ways it comes back to us. It comes back to us to make, to make these tough decisions, to, to, to sit and have a cup of coffee with somebody who believes differently than we do, to have those hard conversations. Um, we in the news media can help. We can, gosh knows, we need to stick to the facts. We need to report only what we know to be accurate. But, of course, that's getting harder uh, as different news outlets claim their own version of facts or choose to focus on one set of grievances over another in order to make a larger point. But we still know if we're covering a story, we can find out what is factual and we can try to stick to that so that the people who, whether they rely on the news hour or they rely on another news organization, they know that that's a place they can trust. It's a place that, that they can continue to respect as having done our homework, of having tried to get to the bottom of a story, having tried to get to the bottom uh, uh, of, of whatever the news development of the day is, that at least we are trying to get to, to facts, to the truth. At the news hour, our job every day is to focus on what we think matters most to the American people and to try to tell it, explain it, put it in context. No more than that, no less than that. That's why, frankly, we believe our audience numbers have, have held up over the last few years because we are trying every day really hard. We are committed to reporting information factually to the American people and not just focusing on the latest uh, hot-button uh, issue or tweet. I'm going to wrap up by bringing us back to my opening remark about Lehigh's founding in the period after the Civil War. It was a period, it was then and it is now, potentially can be a period of reconciliation coming out of, of a period of great division. Uh, there was, as, as you know so well, generosity on the part of one person, Mr. Packer, and he had a vision. And it's exactly that sort of reconciliation and vision that we need right now as a country, in our communities, in our schools, in our places of worship. You, literally, every one of you can help lead the way. You can be part of this conversation. And, and you can say, well, I live here in central Pennsylvania. I'm not sure what I can do. Every American, I think, today has a responsibility to try to bring us through this very difficult moment that we are living in. We can't wait for some uh, shining moment, uh, some, some one individual to show up and, and make a difference. And yes, you know, there will be talented individuals who show up, but it has to come from inside the hearts of the American people. So as you head into another hotly contested presidential election, you're familiar with that here in Pennsylvania, um, and you're going to have another one next year. It's going it's to start right now and for the rest of this year. Um, the stakes are huge. I don't have to tell you that. 
but you, every one of you, can make a difference. We in the media need to do our part. We all need to do our part. And I am betting that uh, we will all, um, we are going to be engaged. We're going to be engaged in this in this uh, fight, if you want to call it that, uh, uh, to, to reach some kind of reconciliation, not perfection, but some kind of reconciliation where we can at least talk to each other, listen to each other, because it matters so much. It matters for our younger generation. It matters for the future of our country. Um, I look to these, to these students, the ones I talked to today, and I think they are so smart and so capable. They are going to be the voices of reason uh, and reconciliation, and, 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 and they will have the vision that I think will help bring us, bring us through this. But it does matter. The stakes are huge. And I'm just glad to have had this opportunity tonight to talk with you a little bit about it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I understand that we have time for questions, and so don't be bashful. Uh, I'm going to move out and around from the lectern and try to recognize. Let's see, who's going to step forward? There's a microphone here, and there's a microphone here. So, or you can shout your question from your seat. All right, I can repeat it if somebody doesn't hear it. Yes, sir. Oh, my goodness. This is a great question. What goes into putting the program together? Well, it's a nonstop process. We come together in the morning at 945. We have a meeting that usually runs till about 1015 or 1030 where we talk about everything that could possibly happen uh, in the day, in the news that day. And we talk about how we structure the show. What are we going to make room for? What are we going to not make room for? We have these, this very, speaking of vigorous debate, debate around the table. And then, of course, two hours later, everything changes. <laughs> Uh, and we have to reorder the show again. Now, it doesn't happen every day, but it happens a lot. We come out of that meeting with a plan. We go out and we say, all right, Judy's going to interview so-and-so. Amna Nawaz is going to talk, go, you know, be at the southern border doing another story. Yamish Alcindor will be talking to someone at the White House. Uh, Lisa Desjardins will be on the Hill. John Yang, William Brangham, my amazing team. People will be working, and we've got people behind the scenes. We'll be ordering stories from uh, abroad, internationally. But again, we have to be mindful of what's going on. If the news changes uh, later in the day and say, Robert Mueller issues a report, we... Uh, <laughs> You know, we don't know. I mean, I, I, as I was driving here this morning, being driven here this morning, I was thinking, okay, I kept checking my, uh, my uh, smartphone to see, iPhone, to see uh, if the Mueller report was coming out. <laughs> I don't know anything, uh, but I have an amazing team. And to answer your question, it is not one person. It is a team of 125 hardworking folks and who work around the clock from the time they open their eyes in the morning until... They put their head on the pillow at night. But thank you for the question. Anybody else? Let's see. Here, here, here. I'm Go. Peg Church. I live in Bethlehem. Um, recently, Senator, the senator from Alaska and the senator from West Virginia, both of different political parties, have spoken about climate issues, and they reached across the aisle and have some have been working together to some degree. I'm wondering what your thoughts or projections are on uh, that happening more 
in the regards to the climate concerns that the White House, when they first came in, they took climate uh, off of their website. It was not climate change was not a topic. Uh, we, you are seeing individual senators working across the aisle on aspects of climate change, uh, on uh, even aspects of immigration, on uh, issues around childcare, on specific issues, you still don't see it work. It working in a bigger way. I mean, you did see with the vote just last week uh, on the part of Republicans in the House and the Republicans in the Senate to go against the president on uh, declaring a national emergency in order to transfer money to build a border wall, which of course he vetoed, and it's going to happen because they don't have enough votes to to override his veto. But but you are seeing in bits and pieces, in corners here and there, working across the aisle. You talk, honestly, if you talk to an individual member of Congress, Republican or Senate, not all of them, but most of them have good friends in the other party. Uh, but you would never know it to listen to the language, to listen to the to the angry rhetoric coming out of Washington. So much of it, or the White House, it's so much of it is just it's just almost computer generated. It's just you know they open their mouth and and the, they're all bad guys. No, they're all bad guys and girls, and that's the way it is. But they do one on one. They do talk to each other. They work with each other, um, but they are under some constraints to stick with their party, which is another whole. Story. It's a lot of how Washington has changed over the last few decades. Washington, uh, when I came to town in the 1970s, I would, my husband and I used to say you'd go to a, out to a dinner and there would be Republicans and Democrats and they'd, you'd have a good, lively conversation. Today, you don't see that. You either go to a Republican event or you go to a Democratic event. They just don't hang out together. The, the party conferences control more of their time. They have structured party luncheons so that the members can't, uh, you know, have a few free moments to go fraternize with somebody in the other political party, um, and they all rush home, most of them rush home on the weekends uh, to be with their in their district or their state, and there's a good reason to, for that to some extent, but it's taken away from those friendships and those relationships that used to be in Washington. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, coming to speak to us here at Lehigh. My name is Evan Shansky, and I'm a junior studying electrical engineering. You talked a lot about um, how to talk with people that have differing opinions, and there's a phenomenon that I've noticed with national politics and also campus issues as well, that there's a subset of the population that isn't as engaged in conversations. Either they're ambivalent or apathetic or don't feel like they want to voice their opinions. How would you kind of suggest talking to people that aren't as engaged in conversation? Well, look, I mean, the reality is not everybody's going to want to engage and talk. I mean, some people just go about their lives and they're busy and they're dealing with whether it's school or raising a family or their career, their job, or making ends meet and holding down two or three jobs. They barely have time to have the, even the luxury, you might call it, of thinking about some of these questions that we're, we are so lucky to be able to talk about tonight. So I'm under no illusion that everybody's got to be part of this conversation. But, but for those who can participate and who want to participate, there just has to be a way to, to, first of all, I think it starts with listening. It starts with listening to the other side and understanding that not all wisdom is, is, uh, resides in, in one political philosophy or another. I know that's, that's hard for some folks with very, very strong political views to accept. 
And I'm not so naive as to think, oh, yeah, we're going to do away with all, you know, people in the hard left or the hard right who believe what they do. I understand that. But it's just that that thinking has crept into more and more of our political community to the point that people who at one point, you know, were open to other ideas are now saying, well, I don't want to hear anything else. I just want to hear and I want to know only about that. And that's what I think we have to guard against. And maybe it means having some really tough conversations in your own family. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you how many people have told me now how, how hard it is to go home at Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas or whatever holiday you, uh, you observe and talk to family members who have a different political view. I mean, that, that I think is emblematic of what's going on. Um, but I think, you know, it, just start around the margins. Start with a neighbor. Start with your, you know, the, the student down the hall you've been meaning to talk to or somebody in the workplace, a neighbor. I, I, just, I just think it's something we need to take on as, as, as a people in this country. Um, and, yes, it would be great if we had a leader who was saying, let's talk to each other. Uh, and, again, I'm not... I'm not saying strong views are going to go away. People are going to have strong views. But we don't have to do it in a way where we demonize the other side. That, to me, is what, is what makes the difference. Uh, yes. So I, I appreciate everything you had to say, especially um, relating to the press. And, and my observation, my question is uh, inspired by my observation of the press lately. And that is, when one vested interest group or another picks up and banties around an epithet to stoke anger and widen distance between positions, do you think the press, in quotes, can do things to diffuse inflammatory rhetoric without losing market share or the actual mission of reporting the news? Well, in public television, public media, we don't worry about market share. I mean, we do, we do want people to watch and listen. That's really important to NPR and to, and to PBS. So that's not an equation for me. I can address the commercial side of it in a moment. But you asked if it's our role to defuse. Our role is to report. It's to cover. It's, I'm sorry, did you say something else? Can you? Can we? Our role is to report and to observe, to share with the public widely what's being said without either exaggerating it or making it or ignoring it. So if it's happening, and I wish I could think of a great example right now, maybe you have one, um, then we need to, we ought to be talking about it, but not beating the drums and making it worse than it is. So that's not our role. That's not what we do. That's not to say there aren't people on television or on the Internet or in social media who, who aren't happy to beat the drums and whip up a fever. Uh, for some people, that's, you know, they love doing that. That's part of their mission in, in life, at least right now. So, um, but that's not what journalists I know and the journalists I respect. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. Uh, so, yes, to answer your question. And then, and then you're asking... Um, uh, are some doing it in order to increase their eyeballs, numbers, uh, audience share? Uh, I, I can't answer that question. I mean, I can observe and I can say maybe if you covered this a little bit less, people wouldn't be so 
uh, worked up about it. Um, but I don't, you know, I'm reluctant to ascribe motives to people in other news organizations that to point fingers and say, well, you're definitely doing this in order to, uh, you know, in order to stir up a fight. Um, I, I think individuals are. I'm not ready to accuse entire news organizations of doing that. I'm particularly interested in uh, terminology that kind of gets bantied around like progressive and socialistic or reactionary and, and it, it becomes descriptive, but not necessarily accurate. Well, I think we need to stick to the facts. We need to stick to what's known. And if one candidate is saying another candidate is a so, I mean, Bernie Sanders himself says he's, I'm a democratic socialist. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said she has some beliefs that are socialist. So if they say that and if their views are that, that's one thing. But just to repeat epithets, no, that's, that's not what we should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first off, I want to thank you uh, for coming and speaking with us today. Uh, my name is Will Newbegin. I'm a sophomore and a journalist here at Lehigh. My question surrounds how do you think we cultivate a news literacy among um, the U.S. population in the news market where there seems to be um, new sources of news, whether they're, uh, you know, legitimate or not, kind of, uh, you know, left and right? Uh, that's a great question. I think what you do is you write about the things that are important in really interesting ways to get people's attention. You know, write about what's going on in the schools, in the public schools in your community. Write about what's going on with regard to the environment. Write about, I'm just picking things out of, out of uh, the air. Um, write about, um, um, you know, why some businesses are struggling to stay uh, open. Uh, write about why some people are having a hard time getting a job. Write about health care issues. Write about them in ways, and write about them in ways that, that, that show you're really interested in that and you really care about it, and that will come across in your reporting. That's the way to get people to read the news if you're, or, or to watch the news. If you write about it in a way that's rote and, oh, I've got to do this and I've got to do this, then it's not, people are not, you know, they may want the information, but they want it in a way that, that is uh, engaged and that, and that will capture you know, their interest in their, and maybe even their imagination, so. How do you, going a little further with that, how do you think we, as, as a population, though, help people develop that critical sense when they come across something they see on Facebook that looks like a real article, um, you know, but actually has very little truth to it? How do you, oh, you, know, you mean how do you tell the difference between what's to be trusted and, and what how isn't? how do you cultivate that on a large scale? I mean, my advice is to look always at the source. If you, to the extent you can see, is this a source you recognize? Is it the Associated Press? Is it Reuters? These are two major news services that have, deploy hundreds and hundreds of, if not thousands of reporters around the world. They work very hard, anonymously often, uh, to, to do good work. Um, and then our mainstream news organizations from New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, um, the, the major networks, the NewsHour, NPR. These are organizations that have been around for a while. You may not like what's on their editorial page, 
but if it's a newspaper, you may not agree with that. But in general, they're doing good reporting. They've got reporters who are working really hard to get information. And frankly, the more different sources of information you can put together, I mean, read, read as widely as you have time to and listen, and then make up, make up your own mind. But do be careful about the sourcing. You know, you, you, people, if somebody sends you a, a post on Facebook, a link, uh, that says, you know, that the Pope, and I think I used this example today, the Pope endorsed Hillary Clinton, or the Pope said, don't vote for Hillary, whatever. I mean, obviously that didn't happen, but a lot of people believe stories like that in 2016 that were just clearly off the boil. It's not always so clear cut. Sometimes it kind of sounds plausible. Maybe, you know, maybe that did happen. That's when you look at the fine print. Um, but it, it's a challenge. I don't underestimate. I mean, it's you've got to take the time to look. You've got to look at the top of the story, look at the bottom of the story. Um, you know, use your your judgment um, and and be discerning. Hold these news organizations accountable. Yeah. Hello, my name is Tyler Longo. I'm a third year engineering student at Lehigh University. Firstly, I'd like to say thank you for having such a wonderful, influential person speaking. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you. And now to get to my question. Like most of my generation, within my family there is a political divide. And based off the title, I'd like to ask about how to start a dialogue with someone with an opposing opinion in the effort of reconciliation, even when there is strong demonization of the opposing sides. <laughs> it's a great question. Because I talked and I just talked about it, but I didn't talk about how to do it. I start with listening and I'm uh, and asking questions. I think you sit down with this family member, maybe over a cup of coffee or a glass of whatever you like to drink, Diet Coke, a glass of wine, I don't know, bourbon, um, <laughs> and, and say, you know, I'd like to have a conversation about the differences that we have over, you know, a couple of things. And tell me, you know, how did you come to that view? Where have you always felt that way? Was that something that you grew up believing? Was there something that changed your thinking on it? Where did that strong opinion come from? And listen and and wait <laughs> and and then and try to draw them out. I think um, I, I've observed this among other people, and sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not. Um, but I think it's worth it, especially if it's your own family and you're with people who love each other but can hardly have a conversation. It, it's, it's, um, it's really tough when that happens. But I think maybe that's the way to do it. You know, a cup of coffee, uh, of scotch on the rocks. Um, and, and just, but listen, ask questions and listen. You may not change the other person's mind, but maybe you'll at least be able to come to a point where you can have a conversation about it, tolerate each other's presence, um, but but in all in all seriousness, come to a place where you remember the humanity in each of you. Remember that the other person is still someone to be respected uh, and and loved if it's a family member, um, even if that person has a very different view. But it's a wonderful question, and I think it's 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 occurring in so many 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 American families right now. Definitely agree with your opinion on love, and I feel like that's very important with family. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Edie Ritter. I'm a Lehigh alumni, and um, I have noticed that, and others, I'm sure, 
that the primaries have become so polarized and uh, there's been the exiting of the moderates from the political arena because of the attacks that are uh, mounting in primaries. Is there anything that can be done about that? Can the media do it? Is there any way we can change that? That the parties have become so... Uh, so polarized that the moderate polarized. candidates no longer yeah. are coming to the fore. It, it's another great question, and we've watched it over time. We've watched the moderates in the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party just slowly fade away. The, the Bill Bradleys, uh, who, by the way, I guess was a Kenner lecturer a few years ago. Um, uh, the uh, I'm, I'm trying to think that John Kasich, who, of course, went on to, to run for governor uh, of uh, uh, of Ohio. Um, uh, there was a time when I could list about eight or ten moderates in each party, but they just, there are very few. I mean, today you think in the Republican Party and you think of Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, uh, perhaps Pat Toomey here in Pennsylvania on some issues and then another. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> I'm trying to, I was trying to get local. (laughs) Um, But, but, but you do, I mean, you do see, to get back to the first question that was asked over here, you do see some Republicans and Democrats working across the aisle. Some Republicans, especially, it's notable because normally uh, they're not invited to work with the other party. It's, it's something that they, you know, they face uh, ostracism uh, or having, you know, losing their committee assignments, um, uh, losing money from the party, having somebody primary them. So, um, but you're absolutely right. It's happened, but it's, it, it goes back several decades. This is not something that just happened like this, that we suddenly became far apart. It's been building. Um, and I think it maybe it probably does go hand in hand with this conversation we're having about lack of civility and, and division in the country. People, um, are not people in the middle are just getting drowned out in this this invective. These you know yelling at each other uh, from far left to far right and right to left, and people who want to say, wait a minute, you know, have you thought about this as another path? What about compromise? What about you know those people are uh, have been have been basically disinvited to the party. <laughs> they're they're not welcome. Um, and, and, and it's true in both parties. I mean, the Democrats have not welcomed uh, folks uh, in, in the center either. It's happened in both parties. So do I have a solution personally for what to do about it? I think some of it has to do with what we're talking about tonight in respecting others. And, and, and I didn't mention this, but I mean, frankly, that in viewing compromise is not a dirty word. Compromise is not a... It's not... It's... It's not always the answer. Sometimes tough stands have to be taken and people have to be made angry and so forth because they didn't get their way. But in general, I mean, as you think back over, I mean, I think back over what Lyndon Johnson did to get the Civil Rights Act passed, what what Ronald Reagan did to get the tax cuts passed. I mean, compromise, compromise. Um, And and that was, you know, for, for a long time, that was just the way it was done. It, that's gotten distorted over time as we've moved past those, you know, those, um, I guess, rose color, as we watch those, those times through rose-colored glasses. 
but, um, but right now there are very few moderates, uh, as you describe them. You're absolutely right. I wish I had an answer. My name is Sally Sayre. I'm a retired school teacher. And um, my question is, where do you find these wonderful women journalists that you have on PBS? Um, <laughs> I love Lisa Desjardins explains it all for you, <laughs> what goes on at the Senate. Uh, Amna Navaz is doing amazing reporting, especially from the border, and she's very balanced. She talks to, you know, one side and talks to the other. She tries to give the whole picture. But um, also, uh, Yamish Alcindor, where did this young lady come from? She's amazing. She talks a little fast. <laughs> but in that way, she gets a lot of information out about what's going on at the White House. So... Well, I wish I could take credit for all of them. Uh, they are amazing. In fact, I'm going to share your comment with them tomorrow morning at our, at our morning meeting. Um, they are extraordinary. I mean, we've, we've gotten, I mean, I have to say the news hours always had some pretty amazing women as well as men. We were founded by Jim Lehrer and Robin McNeil, who, two guys who I owe a lot to, my mentors. Um, so they really taught me a lot in watching them over the years. I learned so much about journalism. But, you know, the first person they brought on board to work with them when it was just the McNeil Era Report was Charlene Hunter-Galt, who was an amazing one. Many of you will remember Charlene, who, you know, who started out as a writer for the New Yorker magazine. Of course, she was a, a figure in the civil rights movement. She was the first, she and Hamilton Holmes were the first two students to integrate the University of Georgia in 1961. So she had her own engagement in the civil rights movement, and yet she, she went on to be an acclaimed journalist. And so Jim and Robin brought Charlene. Later on, I came along, but Margaret Warner was an integral, has been an integral part of the show until a few years ago. But you're absolutely right. Amna came to us from ABC News. Lisa Desjardins has been with us several years covering the Hill. She came to us from CNN. Yamish came from print journalism. She was with USA Today and then the New York Times, and we lured her uh, into television. Uh, by the way, Jeffrey Brown does amazing arts reporting uh, all day long and all night, um, covering, you know, talking to Pulitzer Prize winners and artists and musicians and just incredible work, and we've just expanded our arts coverage. I'm going to give a shout-out to everybody. John Yang does an amazing job uh, for us. Uh, William Brangham, uh, who does, an, I think, an incredible job. He just came back from Antarctica, uh, spent a week or more than a week down there. And, and Oh, and uh, Nick Schifrin, who covers foreign policy uh, for us and has been all over the world. It was a foreign correspondent for a, a decade before he joined us just a couple of years ago. It's an amazing team. I am so lucky to work with each and every one of them. But thank you for giving them this plug. I'm going to share it with them in the morning. Thank you. Judy, we have about 10 more minutes left, so I think we can get these last three questions and then be done. Great. Okay. I'm Taylor Burkhead. I graduated a few minutes ago from Lehigh. Got, deg <laughs> got degrees in engineering and applied science. And um, as a partial answer to the questions about news and how to talk to people, I highly recommend uh, some short videos on the Khan Academy about critical thinking. And it's, you know, 10 minutes, and uh, it refreshed my memory on how to evaluate things. Anyway, my question is, um, however the Mueller, Mueller report comes out, it's going to say the president's a bad guy, the president's not a bad guy, or somewhere in between. And 
I think that that's going to, to a degree, miss the point. And I'm more concerned about what was going on inside the Department of Justice and the uh, FBI. And can you all please shine a bright light on whatever you can dig up in there? Because I'm sure that none of us want to have unelected officials running the show. Very, very good point. And in fact, there's been attention. Congress, as you know, has been looking into what's been going on at the Department of Justice and at the FBI. I actually disagree with you. I think the Mueller, I don't know this, but my instinct is that the Mueller report is going to be, is going to be about a lot more than whether the president is a good guy or the president is not a good guy. I think it's going to be a pretty uh, detailed, comprehensive look at what happened, has happened during the period uh, of the election. And, uh, uh, any connections or not to uh, to the Russian government. So, um, I, I mean, I've observed what Mueller has done enough and knew him earlier when he was FBI director enough to know or to believe that this is going to be a very serious, thorough, lengthy, probably detailed report, and it won't be just... There will be some in the media who will who will take it as a, well, it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. It's going to be more than that. And I hope we all will reflect on it and, and read it and think about it. Um, and uh, because, first of all, we don't know what's in it. I mean, I certainly don't. Um, but I do have enough respect for Bob, Robert Mueller to think uh, it's, going to be, uh, it's going to be full. And I think that's one of the reasons it's not coming out quickly, because they want to make sure they... Uh, answer as many questions as they possibly can before they make something public. I'm, I'm concerned that there are going to be a lot of reporters chasing the shiny object. Um, so if you can focus your unbiased, truth-seeking work on what was going on in these departments, that would be great. I appreciate the question. Thank you so much. Hi. Um, th thank you for coming here again. I think everybody appreciates your talk very much. This has been fantastic. Uh, I'm Colin. I'm a third-year student here at Lehigh. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you, obviously the talk is about like Amer the political divide in America. It's growing. You said you think this is a unique degree of political divide, at least during your career. I I I'm curious, do you think contributing to that is the fact that We've, seen, we've been seeing elections, and specifically presidential elections, elongated. You know, 2016, the first major candidate to declare for president was in March of 2015. Now we have December of 2018. Elizabeth Warren announces an exploratory committee. In 2016, the Republicans have like 20 candidates. Now that's going to be the Democrats this time around. Do you think like this, this elongation, these two-year election cycles for the presidency are contributing to that more because it's just a bigger part of our time and our thinking over the course of two years? I think that's a great question. I think that's part of it. You, but you also, I mean, Barack Obama announced, what is it, in January, February of 2007. So that was a two-year campaign. These two-year things have, have gone back. It doesn't have to be that way, but... There is so much at stake in these elections, and right now the Democrats are looking at, at this election, and they're thinking, um, you know, how many of them think? I mean, if you lined up all the Democrats who think that they would be a better president than President uh, Trump, I mean, the line would be, um, you know, the length of the Senate and the House and the governors and, and on and on. And so they, they want to get their name out early. They want to 
get the recognition. They want to, frankly, they want to raise the money. They want to get their poll numbers up. Um, so there are all sorts of reasons for that, not to mention the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire have the first contests in January uh, or early February of, of the election year. And then you have straw polls and you have Jefferson Jackson Day dinners and these other, the parties are part of this process. But I, I think that's a part of it, but I also think it's social media, it's, it's, it's the internet, it's just this sort of industry of politics, it's political consultants. There are now tens of thousands of them who make a living consulting with candidates. Um, it's, it, there are just so many ingredients that go into the stew that we're now dealing with. But I agree with you, the calendar is certainly, is certainly one of them. Very good question, thank you. Maybe one more? Okay, great. Phil Sweet, Lehigh, class of 72, and moderate Republican. <laughs> Wait a minute, you're alive? <laughs> You're alive and breathe. I may just come out and just touch your arm or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's an extinct species, I think. A quick recommendation on detecting false news. I highly recommend Carl Sagan's baloney detection kit. Go Google it. Take a look. My question is, I heard a chilling quote on NPR the other day, which was that when, when fascism comes to the U.S., it will be called Americanism. Do you see us drifting in that direction? No. Um, I, I think certainly there's talk. I, I mean, I, I don't mean to dismiss your question. I know it's a serious question. There certainly is talk of, um, not just talk, but we've seen evidence of um, intolerance, white supremacy. I mean, um, certainly anti-Semitism. We talked about, you know, what growing instances of, of anti-Islam. Um, again, white supremacy. Uh, so I think we have to take all that seriously. There are these sort of nascent neo-Nazi groups scattered around the country. Some of my colleagues have done really chilling reporting. They've come back with chilling reports on what these groups believe. We saw it in Charlottesville, Virginia um, in 2017. Um, I think that we have to be vigilant as a country. I'm not ready to believe that the American people would stand for that. Uh, but I think we have to be vigilant as a people. We absolutely do because it's, um, it's, it's between the intolerance, the, the ethnic divide, the religious divide that we're talking about, even the racial divide. You put it all together um, and it's a, it's a, it's, it, it adds up to something that could be truly harmful to what we represent as the American people. And so I hope that nothing like that, you know, gains steam, picks up steam, gains mass. Uh, but we have to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant. Our freedom is not something we can take for granted. I've learned in the last two years not to take freedom of the press for granted. I think before that I probably did, like many of my colleagues. Now I don't do that. Uh, and, and I think all of us cannot take our freedom for granted. We can't take our democracy for granted. Um, and, and we are seeing small signs here and there, but we have to speak up about it when we see it. We have to speak up. It's, it's, um, it's the ugliest side of what we're able to do as a people. We're able to speak out and to have different views. 
But when enough of those views reach a critical mass and they are intolerant and they are uh, uh, anti, they're either racist or uh, um, anti one particular religion or another, um, then we have to stand up and, and call it what it is. So I certainly hope not. Thank you, I certainly Wisdom. hope not. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.
for being a 